Keeping Up with Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure, is sponsored by SJL General Contractors. SJL General Contractors is licensed in both Alabama and Tennessee. This family-owned business provides mass grading, storm drainage, sewer and concrete improvement, asphalt paving, erosion control, demolition, and heavy hauling. If you're in need of any of these services, you can contact them at 931 933-4660. That is 931-433-4660. If you'd like to be employed by this family-owned company, three W's and a dot, sjnl.com, www.sjnl.com. I was nine years old in 1972 when Rob White wrote the book Death Watch. I don't remember how old I was when my school teacher began to read it to us as part of a class assignment. Every day at a certain time, she would get this book out and we would sit riveted to our seats as she read a chapter of Death Watch. Death Watch is about a guy named Medic, M-E-D-A-C, and he hires a young geologist named Ben to go with him into the Mojave Desert because he's earned a permit to hunt bighorn sheep. The geologist, Ben, is not really a hunter, but he knows about the area because he's been out there doing geological stuff. Well, while they're on their hunting trip, there's an incident or an accident, and a prospector is killed. And Ben's not willing to help this guy cover it up. So Medic takes his rifle and makes young Ben take off all his clothes and run off into the desert. His plan is to let Ben expire from exposure, lack of water and the heat, and then go back into town and say, hey, this young kid went crazy, killed this prospector, and I'm lucky to have survived. Well, to ensure that Ben doesn't go anywhere, he does the death watch. He sets up a vigil, and that was one of our vocabulary words, and he patrols the desert in Ben's jeep, and keep shooting at him to keep him from getting to a water source or, or keep him from trying to leave the desert. Young Ben finds the prospector's camp, and among the things that he finds to help him survive is a wrist brace slingshot. A wrist brace slingshot was an awe-inspiring weapon to a boy my age. Oh, we'd had slingshots. My dad would carve them and make them for us out of the fork of a tree with some rubber bands or some small kind of elastic stuff. But a wrist brace slingshot, and they sold them. They sold them at Walmart or Kmart or Sky City. A wrist rocket, a black polymer handle over a metal frame that extended and would brace on your wrist. And the elastic was these, this, this looked like surgical tubing. And you could pull that thing back as far as you wanted to pull it because it was braced against your wrist and you had stability. And instead of it working like my dad used to call a slingshot a flip, instead of it working like a flip, this was a projectile weapon. And then Lamar Harbin, a guy that we went to church with who worked at Lee Brothers Manufacturing, gave us a bucket of steel ball bearings. Now, I'm not talking about those little silver ball bearings you get when you buy one of these slingshots. These were marble-sized steel ball bearings. And in the hand of a boy my age with a wrist rocket slingshot, it was a fell and terrible weapon. Uh, we lived in this little neighborhood, and, and we lived on Williamson Street. And Williamson Street teed with Burton, and at the dead end of Burton was, was Snow's Creek. 
and, and we would go down and play in Snow's Creek. And we would float uh, two-liter Coke bottles down. And if they got past a certain point, they, they got to go free. We were littering and polluting the river. But we would stand on the bank and, and hum rocks and even sometimes our steel, our, our coveted steel ball bearings and sink these two-liter bottles. It takes a lot of dedication to sink a bottle in a river because you've got to rupture that thing. And then you've got to rupture it enough that it starts to take on water. Somewhere down the line, we started calling these two-liter Coke bottles Japanese battle cruisers, and so we were sinking the Japanese Armada. I don't know how we mixed the Japanese battle cruisers, the Japanese Armada, and the Death Star, but it did happen. In 1977, young Luke Skywalker piloting an X-wing fighter, drops into what is essentially the equator of a moon-sized battleship called the Death Star. And while running in that trench being fired upon, he releases two proton torpedoes into the thermal exhaust port of the Death Star. Once the torpedoes travel the length of the tube, they reach the main reactor. The torpedoes detonated, blowing up a good chunk of the main reactor and starting a catastrophic chain reaction. The chain reaction called whatever the fuel source of the Death Star was to explode and destroy the entire vessel. I'm a kid with a slingshot. Luke Skywalker hits a very small target with his proton torpedoes. I have just been inspired. What could possibly go wrong? You see, at the end of Burton Street was a chemical company called Tall Chemical. They made they made rat poison. We typically called Snow's Creek Rat Poison Creek. It was just kind of one of those things you do when you're a kid and you don't want to call anything by its real name. So we would go have adventures at Rat Poison Creek. Well, at some point, we decided that the source of the Japanese Armada, all these ships coming down the, the, the stream that we had to destroy, they had to be coming from somewhere. And so our version of the Death Star became Tall Chemical. And you've got a picture of this old corrugated tin metal building built on I-beams and structures surrounded by a high fence. And they placed this thing, they basically dug out the side of a mountain and stuck it back in, like into a gravel pit. Well, my backyard went right up to that mountain. And we would get out of the house, go over the fence, walk the trail, and, and we would be on the same level as the third level of Tall Chemical. And it looked almost like a steeple coming off the top of this rat poison factory. And right in the dead center of that triangular steeple was a small window. It didn't have any glass in it. It was just an opening. It was the exhaust port for the Death Star. And you could sit on that hillside and you could hum steel ball bearings at the Death Star. Now, it takes quite a bit of skill to get one of those steel ball bearings in there. Now, if you hit the outside of this building, it's no big deal. The building was built against the side of this, this mountain with these big trees and the acorns and the branches and stuff fell on this thing all the time and the guys who worked in there just kind of ignored loud thumps. But you get a ball bearing inside that window, 
And if you got it through that window, you could hear it ricocheting all the way out. You'd hear it bouncing off metal. You'd hear it bouncing off I-beams and the dudes in their protective mask and the big rubber boots and the oversized gloves would run outside and start looking around. Granny Clampett would have called them smog goomers. But if you're lying up there in the hardwoods, buried up in the leaves, and you've been the guy to put a ball bearing through the the, the exhaust port of the Death Star, and you start seeing the stormtroopers <laughs> evacuate the Death Star, you can't pay enough money for that kind of entertainment. It's It's a wonder we didn't blow the thing up. It's a wonder we didn't get arrested. But we didn't do it frequently enough, and we weren't good enough to get into the the exhaust port uh, that frequently. But once you hit it, once you hit it one time, you had to leave. You you had to go. Oh, but what it was when you hit that target. What it was to take that wrist rocket and hum that metal ball through there. And once those dudes run out in those boots and look up. (laughs) Oh. I'll never forget watching that Star Wars movie and Luke's in that trench and the voice on the radio says, stay on target, stay on target, stay on target. And when he hit that target, the theater erupted, the Death Star erupted, Luke comes home to a hero's welcome, oh wow. What an exhilarating feeling to hit that target. And and what is your target? What is that impossible dream? That one-time shot? That thing you're aiming for? That if you're not careful, you'll be distracted. If you're not careful, you'll get sidetracked. If you're not careful, you'll crash into the wall. If you're not careful, you'll hit all around it, but you won't hit the target. Uh, essentially, uh, incidentally, the, the Greek word for sin is hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. In fact, in old, old archery tournaments, the distance between the place you were shooting at and where your air actually struck was known as the sin, how far off of your mark you were. Well, what's, your, what's your target? What's that thing you're aiming for? Just recently, my grandson was at the uh, big boys basketball practice with his dad. I think it's the junior varsity guys and Gunners Five. And so they were running wind sprints, and a guy would have to go to the free throw line and shoot under pressure. And if you missed the the free throw, you you had to run again. Well, Gunner's running with these older guys, and so he thinks he's one of them. And he's begging Dad to let him shoot, let him shoot, let him shoot. Well, finally, Dad lets the little five-year-old come out full-size goal and lets him make the shot. He says, if he makes this, practice is over. Well, this little five-year-old boy who plays basketball in a league with a lowered goal stands probably halfway to the free throw line and shoots and sinks this ball. I've seen the, the video footage from the security camera in the gym, and those boys go crazy. They leap into the air. They grab Gunner. They pick him up. They carry him out of the gym on their shoulders. He had a target, a tiny target, and a one-time, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to hit this target. Now, now he's, he's, he's ruined 
He, he will crave making that shot or doing that thing that causes the crowd to erupt. He, he'll be a competitive athlete like his dad the rest of his life because he's been bitten by that bug. But what is that target that you're aiming at? What is that thing that if you could just make it would define or redefine or complete your life? I'm going to tell you, it's a small window when you start thinking about the things that you can actually do to change your life. I would would like to define maybe some concepts for your target. And, and oddly enough, the target that you should aim for should really have very little to do with other people's reactions. It should have very little to do with other people's responses. It should have very little to do with other people's expectations. When, when you hit your target, it, it should be this thing that we describe as deep satisfaction. And that's an internal and maybe a highly personal or maybe an intrinsic value that it just has to you. I just watched a documentary about a kid named Mark andre Leclerc. He's a, he's a solo climber. Now, when you, when you talk about climbing, you know, you, you can top rope, which is start at the bottom and go toward an anchor with a rope that's already there and somebody's pulling your slack in. You can lead climb where you start at the bottom, and as you go, you build your protection system. Sport climbing, the anchors are already in the wall, and you clip to them. Trad climbing, uh, you, you, you place gear into the wall, and then you have solo climbing or free solo climbing. Uh, the, the difference between a free climb and an, an aid climb is in free climbing, you only climb on the rock. You don't ever put your weight on the rope or on the gear. And so if you free solo, that means you're climbing a rock and you're not using anything. You don't have a safety rope. You don't have any way to rest. You're just climbing on your hands and feet. One of the most well-known soloists is, is a guy named Alex Honnold. But Alex Honnold is, has a, is making money, probably makes about what a successful dentist makes because he makes he's monetized his climbing. But there's this random kid in Canada named Marc-Andre Leclerc, and, and he's a, a, a solo alpine climber. Alpine climbers are the guys who do Everest, the guys who do Mont Blanc, the guys who do uh, the Matterhorn, the guys who do Aconcagua down in South America. This guy goes out by himself with his ice axes and his spiky shoes called crampons and climbs these sheer massive ice and rock walls and he doesn't even have any social media. There's some limited photography done on him. Some photographers did a, a story on him. But he's climbed some of the most significant climbs in the world and has no fame or fortune about it. In fact, it's, it's, it's interesting that he disappeared off the map and did this huge, did the tallest peak in the Canadian Rockies. And when the film crew finally found him after several months, they said, why didn't you tell us this? He said, well, if you'd been with me, it wouldn't have been solo. <laughs> and he's got this idea of what deep satisfaction is. And 
he climbs these mountains. He went down to Patagonia and, and climbed this forbidden tower that nobody's ever climbed. And, and he didn't even do it after a practice run. He, he did it on site. Now, the first time he got blown off by a storm, had to come down, but waited a couple of days and went back and knocked it out and, and didn't even take any, any sleeping gear with him. He says, I, I can't afford to spend the night on it. I just got to do it in one day. But he does what he does because it's his passion and his target, his small window, gives him deep satisfaction. Now, I'm not endorsing in any way, shape, or form solo climbing. What I'm saying is this young man was not motivated by other people's reactions. This young man wasn't trying to get published in Climbing Magazine. He wasn't trying to sell a documentary to Netflix. This young man was just doing what he loved because he loved doing it. What's your target? What's that small window? It could be as simple as being the best dad you can be, the best mom you can be, the best brother you can be, the best sister you can be. But whatever it is, you've got to decide that when you aim at that small window, rather than waiting for the explosion or waiting for the reaction over people or waiting for the smog goomers to come out and look for you, you've got to just be satisfied that I hit my mark. And that doing a thing that I love to do, doing a thing that I'm inspired to do, and doing a thing that inspires me to do it, when you hit that small window, you get deep satisfaction. And in truth, deep satisfaction is a small, small window. You're not going to find it with money. You're not going to find it with toys. You're not going to find it with fame. You're not going to find it with popularity. You're not going to find it with notoriety. You can be very full. You can feel full and not actually be fulfilled. Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones podcast adventure is sponsored by us. What? We sponsor ourselves? Is that even legal? Check us out on Amazon. You can have access to the titles of Pedagogue, the youth ministry book by Lonnie Jones. Cognitive Spiritual Development, a Christ-centered approach to spiritual self-esteem. Grappling with Life, Controlling Your Inside Space, a small essay using the principles of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu to talk about psychological and emotional self-defense. If I Were a Mouse, a children's book written and illustrated by Lonnie Jones. And then The Selfish Reel, a very short story about a decision. Also, you can check out our YouTube channel to see archived lessons and presentations from across the country, some videos with uh, rope tricks and knots, don't forget to visit the uh, Facebook page, 550 Guys, to learn about the little rope men that we make and in, that we invented and that we make. And then be sure to click like, subscribe, and share. This is Keeping Up With Jones, the Lonnie Jones Podcast Adventure. Mm-hmm.